0: Well, uh, like Aaron said, my name is Brandon, and I'm one of the pastors here. Really good to uh, be with you guys this morning. Um, if you are new, especially welcome to you. If you're a college student, welcome back after a long summer. Good to have you guys. Um, we uh, wanted to say a special thanks to Aaron and to Ryan, who preached the last couple of weeks. Uh, I was able to take a little bit of time off to uh, get some much Needed house projects done, and also uh, to spend a, a number a good portion of that time uh, preparing looking ahead to where we 're headed this fall in our sermon series um, and so just really for me it 's such a blessing uh, to be able to have guys like Ryan and Aaron and others who just are great preachers to preach and let 's be honest you, you get tired of hearing me right. <laughs> So I'm really thankful for them. They are a blessing to me to give me some space to to prep ahead, and I hope they're a blessing to you in all those kinds of ways as well. So, uh, this fall uh, we're going to be uh, studying the book of first, the books of First and Second Peter. And uh, so if you're new to River City, what we usually do is just uh, pick a book of the Bible and go right on through verse by verse. And and the reason that we do that is because we want God's word to be the thing that speaks rather than me to be the thing that speaks. And we want God's word to be the thing that is of uh, most importance and the thing that we place the most priority on. And uh, so we're going to be uh, in the book of First and Second Peter, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, it. One of the things that's just so encouraging to me about as I study and as I prep is that God's Word is incredibly timeless, meaning that it's true for all peoples at all times and all places. But man, it's so timely. And the book of First Peter, as I study, just felt like it was written to us. Uh, And this time in this place that we might um, see the truths of God's word applied into our lives, the issues that Peter is preaching, that he's uh, speaking into the lives of these young believers uh, across kind of the new Christian world man, the things that they needed to know. Those things are the stuff we need to know as well. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, heading into that book. There are so many just contemporary, real issues that uh, 1 Peter, 1 and 2 Peter address uh, that we need to address in our own hearts, in our own lives as well. And so I'm looking forward to that. That's where we're headed. We'll be in 1 Second Peter pretty much all of the fall. That'll take us up to Christmas. My wife is already planning her Christmas decorations, so get ready, okay? Um. This se- this summer, however, we've been uh, in a series uh, that I've called uh, Jesus on Every Page, the Gospel in the Old Testament. And um, throughout the series, we've been taking a look at Old Testament stories, uh, a bunch of which maybe you heard growing up, maybe some that you never heard before at all. But all of them are ultimately pointing us towards Jesus and the Gospel. It's the point of everything. Every page of the Bible is to reveal Jesus and to reveal the gospel to show us what He's like. And so, um, this morning we're going to wrap up that series as we finish, and then next week we'll begin First and Second Peter. Um, and originally we were going to study the story of, of Jonah this morning, but we're going to save that gem for another week instead. I wanted to wrap up our series um, just by asking this question together: Why does it matter? Why spend an entire summer? going through all of these Old Testament stories? Why is it so important that we see Jesus on every page? Why is it so important that we look for the gospel in the Old Testament? Why is it so important that we approach the Bible with a gospel-centered hermeneutic or a gospel-centered reading or approach? And to answer that question, we're going to take a look at what Jesus himself had to say about it in John chapter 5. And in our passage this morning, what you're going to see is that uh, Jesus is addressing the religious leaders of his day. They are arguably the most dedicated Bible scholars in the history of the world. They had, I'm not joking with you, they had literally memorized the entire Old Testament. Memorized it, right? These people, like they knew the word, right? But Jesus is going to tell them that they missed the point altogether. They had memorized every word and they had still missed the point. And Jesus is telling them and he's telling us what we're going to see in the passage this morning is that there's basically two ways to read your Bible. One is that you can read it and think it's about you. Or the other is that you can read it and you can think that it's about God. And the difference between those things is the most significant difference in all the world. It changes everything. So with that in mind, let's read our passage. We'll pray. Ask God to direct our studies this morning. We're here in uh, John chapter 5. Jesus, again, talking to the religious leaders of his day. He says, And the Father who sent me, he himself has testified concerning me. And you have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one that he sent. And you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. And these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you, and I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Now I've come in my father's name and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, but do any, you do not think that I will accuse you before my father. No, your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your word. Thank you so much that you would uh, give it to us, that you would keep it for us, that we might know you in it. God, we're thankful for your word, but we're most thankful for you. And so God, as we study this morning, as I preach and teach, as we seek to understand your word, God, pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, that I might have anything valuable to offer us this morning. God, we want to see you on every page. And so we pray pray that by your Spirit's power, you might cause us to see that as true this morning. In your good name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, Jesus is in no uncertain terms. He's saying that there are basically two ways to read your Bible. One, you can read it thinking it's about you. We see this in verse 39. He tells the religious, he says, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them, You have eternal life. Jesus isn't talking to people who don't read their Bible. He's not talking to skeptics. He's not talking to cynics. He's talking to people who read their Bibles diligently, who read it every day, but still miss the point. And Jesus is saying that they're reading the scriptures and they think it's about them. He says to them, you study diligently. Why? He says, because. You think that in them, you think that in keeping them, you think that in finding them, that you have or that you earn eternal life. You see, the religious leaders, their approach to the purpose of God's word was that it was about them. It was about them figuring out how to get eternal life. It was about them figuring out what they needed to do, how they needed to live, what rules they needed to keep, what things they needed to do. D.A. Carson uh, writes this, he says, their primary motivation for studying the scriptures was the hope of finding final acceptance from God. Their goal was not to know God more. It wasn't to have their hearts changed by God's word. It wasn't to be more and more like him. Their goal was so that they could get or earn or attain eternal life from God. And just to be clear, don't hear me wrong. The Bible does show us the path towards eternal life. The Bible does give us instruction about how to live, but that's not the point. The Bible is not a rule book. The Bible is not a treasure map to God. The Bible does not contain a secret recipe to your best life now. And the Bible is not a rubric by which you measure your life and see if you match up. That's missing the point altogether. Instead, Jesus says the purpose is to reveal the one who gives life in the first place. Verse 39 goes on and he says, These very scriptures, the ones that you study diligently, the ones you've spent years memorizing, it's these scriptures that testify about me. They're about me, he says. They point to me. They're they're about here and now and what I am accomplishing here for you. And he's saying to them, they don't leave you longing for the path to eternal life. They leave you longing for the giver of life. See, the religious leaders, their motivations to study God's word were to find out how to get eternal life from God. And Jesus is telling them, it doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how many verses you have memorized. It doesn't matter how holy your life looks on the outside. It doesn't matter if you missed me. If you missed the whole point, it doesn't matter. See, the only way for God's word to be life-giving is if we look at it looking for the giver of life that it reveals. And Jesus is saying the way that we're supposed to read the Bible is that we realize it's about him. And that's option two. The Bible's not about you, instead it's actually about God. The point of the whole Bible, its purpose, the goal, is not to give us instructions about what we need to do, but it's to reveal God and all that he has done. It's to reveal his truth, it's to reveal his love, his justice, his righteousness, his goodness, so that we would come to him and have life. You see, the two ways of reading the Bible are altogether different, and they produce radically different. Different results. They're not just different approaches. It's not just like, ah, eh, cool one way. Here, I have my own way. They are diametrically opposed. They are at odds with each other. If you remember, uh, if you're with us this fall, we or this spring, we studied the Sermon on the Mount. And there's two kingdoms that Jesus is contrasting in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's the kingdom of religion versus the kingdom of the gospel. And although they look similar on the outside, Jesus is very clear that they are absolutely, in every way, different. See, what happens when you read the Bible, when you approach it thinking it's about you, always, universally, you always get religion. And when I say religion, I'm I'm not talking about a specific religious system or set of beliefs. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about a certain church. But instead, I'm talking about a way of thinking and relating to God that's based on our actions, our attitudes, our behaviors, our performance, being the thing by which we gain or maintain God's love, his approval, his acceptance. You see, the goal of religion is to get something from God. The goal of religion is always to get something from God. In this case, the religious leaders, they're trying to get from him. They were trying to get eternal life. That's the thing they wanted. They wanted to make sure that they would live forever. See, religion sees God as a means to an end. They just, the, the religious leaders just wanted to study the word so they could find out the path. How do I get this eternal life? Religion sees God as a means to an end. And religion is about you having control over your destiny so that you know how you get there and what you need to do and all the things so that you can be in charge and you can be in control. Religion says, if I obey, then God will love me. And it's always motivated by fear that God doesn't love you. Or it's motivated by a self-righteous pride that he's supposed to. You see, in the end, religion is always... It is always about you. And religion only has two outcomes it's either pride or despair. It's pride because you arrogantly think that you have lived up to God's standards and you start comparing yourselves to others to see how much better you are than them. Or it's despair because you realize that there is absolutely no way you could ever live up to God's standards. When you compare yourselves to others, you just feel ashamed. Religious thinking characterized the people that Jesus was talking to you, but it's not unique to them. You all know people who think like this. Maybe they don't say these things on the outside, but it's, why do you go to church? Well, I want to make sure that God's happy with me. I want to be on his good side, so I go to church. Why do you pray? Well, I'm I, I'm asking God for things. I want him to give me something. Maybe it's help, or maybe it's a person, or maybe it's a reward, something. Why do you give? Well, if I give, then God will give back to me. He'll bless me if I give to him. And the problem is you never want to be around people like that. Because they're either self-righteous jerks who just look down on everybody else because they're measuring themselves and they think they're better, or they're just constantly full of guilt and shame. And they make you feel the same way. But let's see, we think that religious thinking is just something other people do. I want to remind us, religious thinking is the default mode of relating to God of every human heart. Because it makes sense. You get what you deserve. You earn something, and then you get paid for it. Right? You treat. You do one thing, you get a reward for it. That's how our, that's how our, our just everything seems to work. But that's not how the gospel works. And it's true of you and it's true of me. How often are our motives for doing the right things based on trying to earn God's approval? Why do you do quiet times? Why do you read your Bible? Is it because you you just feel better when you do it? Is it because you feel like you're supposed to read your Bible? Is it because you just need that encouraging pick-me-up to start your day? Or is it because you want to know the Lord of the world? Let's be honest. It's not always the latter. How often do we look at other people? We see sinful behaviors in our friends, our neighbors, or the world around us. And we think, man, at least I'm not that bad. We don't say it out loud, but our heart thinks that. Why? Because we know that we don't measure up to God's standards. And so we need something to compare that we measure up to. And we just look to other people to try to compare ourselves and to see how good we are in God's sight and how, how we measure up and how we stand with him. It's the default mode of every heart. And when you read the Bible thinking it's about us, that's the only conclusion you can come to. And what happens is you try really hard and you fail, or you just reject it altogether. And the enemy, Satan is cool with either of those options. Because he wants us to miss the point and to miss the purpose, and in so doing, miss God altogether. But if we approach God's word realizing that it's not about us, but it's actually about him, you don't get religion, you get the gospel. And the kingdom of the gospel is altogether different than the kingdom of religion. The goal of religion is to get something from God, but the goal of the gospel is to get God Himself. See, religion sees God as a means to an end, but the gospel sees God as the end. He is the thing to be desired, He is the thing to be longed after, He's the thing to be treasured and enjoyed and sought after with everything. And in the gospel, He gives Himself freely. Religion is about you being in control of your fate, but the gospel is about you surrendering to the one who is in control, which is so good because you suck at being in control. And religion says, if I obey, then God will love me. But the gospel is absolutely opposed because the gospel says, because God because loves you, it's possible for you to obey. Do you see how they are absolutely different? You see, in the end, religion is just about you. But the gospel is about God, and that's such good news. Because the increase of God's glory always leads to our good. See, the gospel is good news because it's not about you. It's actually about God. If the Bible is about you, it it will never, it will never be good news to you. (laughs) Instead, it's just going to crush you. The only thing it can do if it's about you is just crush you under the weight of of how much of a failure you are. Jesus tells the religious leaders this. He says this in verse 45 of our passage. He says, says, I'm not accusing you. Your accuser is Moses. It's on him your hope is set. You see, Moses wrote the books of the law. And these religious leaders, they think, if we just know the law, if we just keep it, if we just do what we're supposed to do, then we'll get eternal life from God. And Jesus says, that their hope is totally misplaced because the only thing that that's going to do is leave them accused because they do not measure up and no one does. See, God's standard is perfect as Jesus was perfect. Nobody is that. Jesus says their hope just leaves them accused. Likewise, all of the stories we read this summer, they just leave you accused if they're about you. If the story of Joseph, if that is about you, if it's just an example of forgiveness that you are supposed to imitate, if it's, if it's just this example, this picture of what you're supposed to be like, then you will never measure up to that. Forgive and bless a family that hated you, that literally sold you into slavery. And I'm serious here, never apologized. Like, literally never apologized. Forgive them, bless them, give them great abundance. I have trouble forgiving my wife when she leaves me without a roll of toilet paper, right? (laughs) If I'm in Joseph's position... I exact revenge on the idiot brothers. And if you're honest, you do too. But if the story of Joseph is not about us, and instead it's about God, it's about a God who, like Joseph, was unjustly rejected by his own family, who was betrayed for money by his own family, about a God who, like Joseph, would forgive an unforgivable offense and would instead, through his rejection, bring about the blessing and the salvation of the very people who rejected him, oh, then it's good news. Because you're just like the brothers. We are just like the brothers who needed forgiveness and who were given it graciously. Not based on our merit, not based on our, like, not based on even the fact that we apologized, See, the story reveals that God relates to his family not based on their performance but based on his grace. And when you see the incredible grace and forgiveness that Joseph showed his brothers and then you see Jesus, what you'll see is that Jesus showed you more grace than Joseph could ever have imagined showing his brothers. What will happen is your heart will be melted by the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus. And that His forgiveness towards you that will fill you with a longing and a love to forgive others. You see, Joseph's story is only good news if it's about Jesus and about the gospel, if it's him on every page. If the story of Samson is just about you, if it's about the lessons that you need to do about avoiding temptation and avoiding sin so you can make sure you're clean and holy so God will use you, then you already failed because we fall into temptation all the time. We're not perfect. Oh, but if the story of Samson is not about him, but it's about God's strength, not Samson's strength, then it's good news, right? Because it's about God's strength to use the strongest of fools to save his people. It's about God's strength to use the most ignorant and the most foolish of people. That he would save them. That he would, in their ignorance, give them life. That he would, in their blindness, use them. Man, it's good news. If the servant songs of Isaiah 42... Are just the example of the kind of servant that you're supposed to be? You don't measure up. You haven't served faithfully like that servant. You haven't served purely as he did. You haven't served completely like he does. You don't serve selflessly like he did. Ah, oh, but if the prophecies in Isaiah 42 are about Jesus, then that song is beautiful. Because it's about a God who served you faithfully when you were blind it's about a god who served you selflessly even when you rejected him it's about a god who served you patiently even in your doubting and it fills you with a passion to love and to serve like jesus the true servant who loved and served who opened your blind eyes and who set you free. And you'll be able to love and serve people who are far from Jesus, who are opposed to you and whose ignorance is blinding towards you because you know that you were the exact same. And Jesus loved and served you when he should not have done it. If David and Goliath it's just about you facing your fears or about overcoming the obstacles in your life, about you trusting God enough to overcome the giants, then it will only crush you because you do not have the faith that David has. Our faith is like the Israelites who are cowering in the corner, just desperate for some kind of rescue. What happens when you throw all of the stones that you can find and you still miss? What happens when the undefeatable circumstances of your life actually defeats you? What happens when cancer actually takes someone in your family? What happens when you can't find a job no matter how hard you look? What happens when that depression that you are feeling is so overwhelming you just cannot get out of bed in the morning? What happens when you have no stones left to throw? Ah, but if it's about God and not about you, then the story of David is such good news. Because it's not about how we're supposed to fight. It's about the one who already fought for us. good news because Jesus rescued us from the undefeatable enemy of Satan and sin and death while we were cowering in a fear and unable to move. And his victory has become our victory so that we walk in freedom and deliverance because of him. Not because we won a great battle, but because he won the greatest battle of all. And we're free to celebrate him and we're free to treasure him and we're free to trust in him and we're free to rely on him. And we're free to come to him when we feel like we're defeated and say, Jesus, remind me of the battles you already won for me. It wasn't the strength of David's faith that gave him victory. It was the object of his faith. It was God himself who's revealed as the true champion of David and Goliath. Do you see how it has to be Jesus on every page? Do you see that we need it to be Jesus on every page? Are you coming to love him more and more on every page? When you read the Bible, understanding it's about God revealing himself to us, then it's good news because you get the gospel and the gospel always, it always produces a humble joy. Because the gospel is motivated by unmerited and undeserved and unearned grace that has been abundantly and freely given. The gospel produces humility. It produces grace. It produces love. It produces gratitude. It doesn't produce self-righteousness. It doesn't produce comparing ourselves to one another. It produces comparing ourselves to Jesus and realizing it doesn't matter because he saved us. The gospel causes you to long to obey and give your life back to Him because you don't deserve to have the life you have anyway. When you see the gospel on every page, it causes the love of God to dwell in your heart. You see, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had studied the scriptures diligently, they had read it, they had memorized it, but they had Missed the point altogether. Jesus' words in verse 42 are like the ultimate gut check. Like they are just a punch straight to the face. But it's a loving punch. I want you to hear this, right? It's like you're slapping somebody awake. He tells them in verse 42, he says, I know you. I, I know you. I know exactly who you are. He says, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. He's saying that in missing him, they had missed the point and they had missed God altogether. The love of God is not in them. They are still enemies of God. They are still not yet his children and they're blind to this. They hated Jesus for saying it to them. But I want you to hear this. I need you to hear this. Jesus told the religious leaders that hard thing. He did it out of love for them. In the book of Acts, we see that it says that many, many of the religious leaders that Jesus spoke to, many of them turned from religion and believed the gospel. Many of them did. And if you are here this morning and you are realizing that you have been reading the Bible and relating to God through the lens of religion, then Jesus' words to you are good news because there's still time to turn. See, religion, it, it looks pious on the outside, right? It looks really good on the outside. My life looks good. Things are all kept together. I have my ducks in a row. I, I'm, I look like I'm better than other people, like I'm more righteous. I look like it on the outside. But religion is just rebellious mutiny in some pretty clothes. Because at the heart of religion is saying, by my effort, by my power, by my control, I'll be right with God. And what you're saying is, God, I want to be in charge. I'll I'll be the one who determines if I'm in or out. I'll I'll be the one who sets the rules. I'll be the one who determines those things. And that's just mutinous rebellion because there is one true king and it's not you. It's not you. And that's good news for you. Because Jesus calls even the most rebellious of sinners, even the most mutinous of rebels. He calls them to come and receive grace and mercy and forgiveness at the cross. Religion, it seems like good advice, but it's actually just a poison apple. The gospel is good news that actually brings life as we surrender to the king who is in control and for our good. So what's next, right? How do we, how do we approach God's word correctly? How do, we, how do we learn to read it always, looking for Jesus, looking for the gospel? I just have just a few short things, and then we'll finish. One, you've got to understand that you need the gospel today as much as you did the very first day you became a Christian. You need the gospel just as much today as you ever did. I think growing up, I thought about the gospel kind of like the cornerstone of a building. I thought, it's really important to get that right. But once it's in place, you just kind of build stuff on top of it. You don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. You're, you're really glad it's there. And you smile when you walk past the corner of the building and see established 1908. Awesome. This thing has been standing for a while. This is great. But it really doesn't affect anything in your daily life. It's just kind of there. But that's not how the Bible talks about the gospel. That's not actually how it talks about it at all. See, the, gospel talk, the Bible talks about the gospel a lot more like the hub of a wheel. At the center of every wheel, there's a hub. And the spokes connect to the wheel, they connect the hub to the outside of the wheel, to every part of the wheel. Without the hub, the wheel doesn't work. It just falls apart. It goes nowhere. It does nothing and the gospel is intended to be the thing at the center of our lives it's intended to be the hub that is connected to every aspect of our lives to your work to your family to your spiritual growth to your joy to your like forgiveness to how you deal with sin like every literally everything and looking at the way looking at the gospel that way dramatically changes everything because instead of walking past it every easter Smiling when you see established, 1908, great. Instead, you start to see it like the diamond that it is. And you love to spin it around and you love to see how the light affects it. You love to see the beauty of it as you turn it and see the many facets. Because what you're realizing is that just like the hub of the wheel is the most important part of the wheel, so too the gospel is the most important part of our faith. It is the thing that must connect to everything if we want anything to work. The gospel is not just a foundational building block. It must connect deeply with every part of our lives. You've probably heard me use the language before of gospel fluency. As Christians, the gospel is our new language, and we learn to speak the gospel into every area of life. We need to become fluent in how the gospel applies to everything in our lives, so that, as Ephesians says, when we speak that truth in love, that will grow up into maturity in Christ. See, the gospel is the thing that has saved us, but the gospel is, is the thing that is saving us every day. It's the thing that makes us more like Jesus. That's why every single sermon you will ever hear me preach, we are always going to get to Jesus. Because without him, it's like a wheel without a hub, and it doesn't matter. Brings me to point number two. Put yourself under the teaching of people who point you to Jesus and the gospel. You will find that here at River City, but we're not the like we don't have like some unique edge on the market or something like that, right? We're not the only ones who know what the gospel is or who point you towards Jesus or preach it or teach it. But there are a lot of churches that do not point you towards Jesus. If you've been around River City for more than two or three minutes. I think the thing I hope you notice is that the gospel is the thing that matters the most to us. It is the first part of our vision statement growing in the gospel. It is the very first thing on the list of core values to be gospel-centered. At River City, there is one thing of first importance, and it's Jesus and his gospel. There's only one thing that can matter most, and there's only one thing that should. And so my, my heart for you... Put yourself under the teaching and the preaching of people who point you towards Him. If what you hear at the church you always go to is do better, try harder, like keep going, just press on. Here's the example, live up to it, have ha, just have enough faith. That's not pointing you to Jesus. That's just leading you towards religion, and religion is gonna kill you. You need the gospel. You need the gospel preached into your hearts and into your lives all the time. The Apostle Paul, he's doing this for the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you'll fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf. So learn from people who point you towards Jesus. I, I pray every week that God would be gracious in allowing me to show you Jesus as we open God's word. The thing that matters absolutely most to me is that you see him that you love him as we read his word, that you are filled with the joy that comes from the gospel as you see it applied into your life. That's the thing that matters most to me. That's what I want you to grow in the most. I am so grateful for pastors like Matt Chandler or Jeff Vanderstel, or John Piper, for many, many others whose styles are all radically different, but whose message is all the same. Look at Jesus, see him. Treasure him most. Be motivated by his gospel. Be fueled by his grace, by his love, by his power. And so you'll find that here at River City. And you can find it other places, but put yourself under that teaching. Thirdly, read the Bible on your own, looking for Jesus and the gospel. This is a huge reason we did this series, because I want to train you to be looking for Jesus and the gospel on every page as you read your own Bibles. Spend time reading God's word on your own. Do it, but do it to know God, to know him. Not to feel good or to assuage your guilt or to try to please him by doing the right things. And just hear me here. Don't wait until you know you have the right motives to start doing it. Just start. And in process, ask God to change your heart. Jesus doesn't tell the religious leaders; He doesn't say, stop studying diligently. He says, start looking for me. In your diligent study, start looking for me. Come to me so you'd have life. You don't need a seminary degree. Man, look at all the good it did the Pharisees. Like literally the most dedicated Bible scholars in the history of the world. And they missed the point altogether. You do not need a special degree. You do not need special training. I just, I need you to hear, I need you to hear this. The absolute, the single most important thing that you can do as you read your Bible is to ask the spirit of God to reveal Jesus and his gospel to you as you read. That is absolutely the most important thing that you can do. Whenever I open God's word, every time I always pray, God, make Jesus known to me. Show me the good news about the gospel. Show me who you are and what you're like as it's revealed in this passage. That's my prayer every time. It's the job of the spirit to shine light on Jesus. It is the thing he is very absolutely best at. And he loves to do it. So ask him. When you read God's word, ask him. Spirit, show me Jesus. Show me him as the point. Show me him as the thing to which all of this is leading. Make that a practice in your quiet times. As you read God's word, it is more important than any degree or any tool or any book or any resource you could ever possibly find. The spirit of God is what you need. And as you're reading, get a good study Bible. Like it just helps, right? When you're by yourself, like you don't have people to ask questions, like you kind of just need some help sometimes, right? Uh, at River City, we use the NIV as a translation here. The NIV Study Bible is really good. It's really helpful. Also, uh, a resource I might point you to is the ESV. It's another translation, but the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible. It's a study Bible that the, all the notes specifically uh, talk about how each of the passages really is about the gospel, how it shows you some of the lenses for which that's there. That has also been one of, just the, one of the most helpful tools I've used in reading. Lastly, when you read, you have to look for Jesus. You have to see him as the goal of everything in which you study. There's a really, really helpful article by Nancy Guthrie that I'll post on our social media site, and she gives a bunch of really helpful, specific things to look for as you think about studying and reading the Gospels. But just a few, to name a few examples, she says... You need to look for a problem that only Christ can solve, whether that's our inability to keep the law or our separation from God. You need to look for a promise that only Jesus can fulfill, that, things like the cleansing of our hearts and the renewing of our souls. You need to look for uh, a need that only Christ can meet, like forgiveness or freedom from judgment. You need to look for patterns or themes that come only to resolution in Jesus, things like the suffering servant of Isaiah or the true rest of God's people you need to look for stories that only have their conclusion in jesus like samson this this one who rescued israelite the rescued israel but just did it just foolishly his story completes in jesus who would rescue completely and fully and righteously look for people who prefigure or or foreshadow the kinds of ways that jesus will serve and look for revelations about jesus in the old testament We talked about the very first week when it says the angel of the Lord. That's usually talking about Jesus. I'll think, I'll post the article on our social media. It's a really helpful tool as you think about studying on your own. But the point is this. You have to assume that the purpose of every passage is not about you, but it's about him. It's about him revealing the truths about who he is so that you might see who you are and be filled with great joy to live in light of it. My deepest longing is that you'd love the gospel and that you'd love the good news of Jesus on every page. That you'd see him on every page. That you would love him more and more and more as you see him as the fulfillment of all of the longings and all of the needs throughout the Bible. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. And communion is a, a picture. It's a reminder for us about the gospel. And the bread reminds us about Jesus' body, which was broken for us as he lived the life we couldn't live. And the drink reminds us of uh, Jesus' blood that was shed for us as he died the death that we should have died in our place. And communion, it does not make you right with God. It does not change your standing with him. It does not make, you, does not make him happy with you or less happy with you. It does not affect your standing with him in any way 1 Corinthians 11 makes that abundantly clear. Instead, for those who have by faith trusted Jesus' work, his life lived on your behalf. His death died in your place. Then remembering then communion is a remembrance. It is a joyful celebration about the gospel. It's remembering the grace that you've been shown by Jesus, the true and better forgiver than Joseph. The true and better king than David. The true and righteous judge that samson should have been the suffering servant of isaiah that he prophesied would come the sacrifice that is better than the atoning of some goat's blood it's the grace of jesus you've been shown every church does communion a little bit differently here at river city the bread and the juice are in the back and as we sing you can at any time you feel led you can go back and dip the bread in the juice and, and take communion And as we sing as remember the gospel in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus, in his gospel, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration about all that he's done for you. You don't need to be a member here. There's not like any rules that you need to follow. You just need to belong to Jesus. But if you've not yet put your trust in, the, in that gospel, if you've not yet put your hope in Jesus' work on your behalf to be the only and one thing that makes you right with God, then I just would ask you if you'd hold off on taking communion. Because it would just be a religious practice to you, and we don't want you to have religion. We want you to be saved by Jesus. And the invitation is not to come and take the elements, but the invitation is to come and receive Jesus. So this morning, if by God's grace, you choose to rely on him completely and trust in him, then by all means, go take communion. Do it really just, man, that's a celebration if that's the case. Do it as worship unto him. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus explained to his disciples how everything in the Old Testament from the book of Moses through the prophets was all about him. Do you see it? Do you see Jesus on every page? Do you see your need for him on every page? And are you coming to love him on every page? Let's pray. God, thanks so much for you and for your word most of all. Thanks for Jesus. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. God, we just come, we just confess that like our default mode of relating to you is religion. We're always tempted to believe that it's our performance that changes our status, our standing with you. It's something that we do or don't do. But God, we, just, we need you to, rem- to show us that the Bible is about the gospel so that we might just love and treasure and enjoy you and live for you with motivation and power that we could never have from religion. God, orient our hearts so that we're able to see your word being about you and not about us. God, I just pray that you'd be just gracious to us as we read your word this week on our own. Help us to see you as the the point of all of it. Cause us, just fill us with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving and, and motivation to give ourselves back to you in light of that. We love you, God. Thanks that you loved us first. Amen.